Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I am your host as always, Steve Hall, and I am joined by Menno Henselmans this week. You guys all should be aware of who Menno is. He has been on many of the roundtables and we have done some solo episodes as well, so you know how well-versed he is in everything we're going to be talking about. And we have been asking you for your questions, so we're going to be covering a load of your questions, which thank you for because some of them are really interesting and I'm excited to ask them to Menno. But first of all, Menno, how's everything on your end? Anything exciting happening that you want to let people know about? Good. No, I mean, uh, uh, full-time coaching, PT course is going uh, steady, so uh, I've got my hands full. Got a few uh, papers in the, in the works that uh, hopefully will be uh, uh, done this year. So, uh, yeah. Not too busy to keep the the hair looking good, the beard looking good, <laughs> nice and trim. I heard, it, are you writing a book? For some reason, I think I saw, I heard that that was happening. Mm-hmm. Yep. Also, uh, well, that's a bit on the, the back burner, but I'm about 250 pages in. Wow. So it's uh, it, it's coming along. It's going to be about the science of self-control. So a bit different than wow. what I usually write about, but uh, with relevance to how to make your workouts uh, easier, RPE, um, nutrition, how to make dieting easier, dieting adherence. And also productivity and more general lifestyle uh, well-being advice. So I think that's going to be a, a, a cool topic. No, it absolutely will be because I always say one of the biggest things as my role of a coach is almost stopping people from harming themselves. That sounds silly, but stopping from mm-hmm. dieting too hard when it's inappropriate or pushing too hard in the gym. That's often the role of the coach is kind of like mm-hmm. keeping them the reins on the client in some ways, keeping them guided. So I think that would be fantastic. Yeah, you've really got the, the reins and the whip. Yeah, the reins and the whip, definitely. A little bit of carrot. Well, maybe not carrot. That probably doesn't sell to many of our clients. So we dig into the Q&A if you're ready. And the first question is from Wesley. And he wanted to know what your thoughts were on intraset stretching. So I think there was a recent study that came out that people are kind of very interested in where people were stretching and there seemed to be some positive results with that. It's obviously quite popular with some of the old programs from someone like Dante Trudell. Uh, mm. What are your thoughts on that? Um, so the, the recent study was on interset stretching, um, like stretching in between your sets. Um, and probably that's what the, the person means. Uh, intraset, uh, like dog crap training, would actually be intraset, like within the set sort of, uh, or in the sense that you sort of finish the set with the stretch. Like in dog crap training, you would do like double bench press um, to failure, and then take a few breaths, uh, do another set to failure, take a few breaths, another set to failure, and then you end with like a, a fly a position, and you just hold that position uh, until you feel like you're dying, and then uh, you let go, and then you're done for chest that day. So um, there's not much research on that. That would probably be more like, I mean, that's not even really much of a stretch in so much as it's, it's a weighted stretch, more like an isometric contraction, right? So um, it's probably, um, it's, it's probably going to add to the muscle tension and the signal for muscle growth. 
but I don't think it will be uh, most effective in terms of the stimulus fatigue ratio that you'll do. Like you'll do massive muscle damage, most likely with something like that, because you're you're basically you've got tension on the pecs in their most stretched position uh, when they are already extremely fatigued. So you're going to lose massive muscle damage, and any growth uh, that you get from that, which is you know quite hypothetical even at this point, is probably not worth that trade-off in fatigue. Uh, as for interset stretching, which is what the new study looked at, and that study did find greater muscle growth, some issues with the statistics, but overall, if you just look at the data, the trend for me is, is, is quite clear that uh, there, there was an advantage. Um, but that study found that if you stretch in between sets, you get more growth, but they equated volume between the groups. So if you're equating volume, then you may be working harder in the group that was doing the stretching. So a very big problem in, in that study, which is a problem in many studies, is that they say they implemented progressive overload, but they also say they equated repetitions. And that's not possible. You, you cannot do both at the same time, right? Because then you would have to sort of, um, or you'd have to have like pairs in the study of people, or you'd have to calculate every workout what the volume of one group is, and then have the other group do that volume. But then what, what if they could do more? Then you know right. they're work, not working as hard. So... Um, it's very difficult to um, to be sure exactly of how, how they did that in a practical manner. And since we know it from other research that stretching within a session or before a session, at least static stretching, can reduce muscle activation and force output because it's basically telling the nervous system to relax the muscles. That's pretty much what static stretching does. It tells the nervous system that it's okay to give more permission in terms of how far the muscle can stretch. But the mechanism for that, that is that the nervous system becomes a bit more relaxed, basically, and not as primed for performance. Mm -hmm. So other research has found that stretching before or within the session actually reduces muscle growth, primarily probably because it makes your workouts less effective, it makes you weaker. So you may be able, in this study, it may be that you know they were weaker and therefore doing the same volume led them to work harder, and that's why they gain more, which would actually be, you know, in practical terms, a disadvantage for stretching. If you go all out, um, so I'm not I'm not very sold on the, mm -hmm. the concept yet. And um, uh, if if there is a benefit, I would maybe do it more sort of dog crap style, or at least near the end of the session, than uh, in between sets. So and again, there's the the question of um, stimulus fatigue ratio, whether that's worth it. So I'm I'm very uh, um, hesitant to include this, uh, especially in client programs. Awesome, yeah, I think that was a really good approach to it because I think a lot of the listeners will be kind of subscribed to mass which is obviously an excellent research review and i think you touched on some points there that they didn't necessarily touch on so it's exciting to hear your point of view as well and i think they kind of concluded similarly to you that it's too early to really call like everyone start stretching in between um, mm -hmm. their sets and things now so um no i really appreciate that Next question is from Elian, or he's got a bunch of questions, but there's some really good ones here. So he has asked, uh, in terms of hard gainers, how have you approached kind of seeing how do they make gains? Kind of what have you had to do or what experience have you had with a quote unquote hard gainer? Okay, so how to train for hard gainers. That's um, the first thing you always need to do because what is a hard gainer, right? So you need to figure out whether someone is, we're talking about a genetic trait or whether by hard gainer just mean they have trouble gaining, which is usually the case, right? So that's, that's actually often with pro science, like there's an observation 
And then they rationalize that, like, you know, dairy makes you fat. And what really the observation is you consume dairy and you get bloated, yeah. you see less muscle definition. But it's actually lactose intolerance has nothing to do with fat gain, right? So uh, often when someone says they're a hard gainer, they have trouble gaining mass. That's usually uh, the actual observation. And then you have to see, is that environmental? Or is there a genetic structure? Like they genetically, they have a different uh, genotype. That means they should train differently than other people. And if it's environmental, it just means you need to figure out, uh, troubleshoot the program, basically. You know, are they eating enough protein? Is their nutrient timing okay? Uh, how about micronutrients? Things like cholesterol people don't, you know, um, don't know as much about or often neglect. Omega free fatty acids. Uh, do they have glaring deficiencies somewhere? Is their training program set up well? Are they doing enough volume? Um, that's, so it's just an overall check of both adherence and um, the, what they are currently doing the program or what you have them doing and then figure out you know where it, where it goes wrong and adjust from there. If you find that everything should be working, but they are still not gaining as they should be, and you suspect that you know that there may be a genetic influence that this individual really is different than other people, um, we have a few only a few studies on this. And they're basically, they're quite limited, but we know two things with um, relatively great certainty. One is that for a lot of hard gainers, uh, what they really need is just more volume. And we have a good study, especially on endurance training, that some people just need more volume to you know, make the gains happen than other people. And this can be due to uh, an inherent greater fatigue resistance or just you know, stubborn muscles. They need a higher volume to get the muscle growth signal. Um, up and running or um, it could be due to motivational reasons which means they are just not training as hard right and they just you need the whip instead of the reins for this individual and you need them you need to motivate them to work harder i found that a very good uh, discriminant to look at in the training program is work capacity is it's basically the, the fatigue index is how many reps do you drop across sets so if you see that an individual is like uh, an extreme scenario, which would be very indicative of under training, would be if the reps go like 8, 12, 7, 15, right? That makes no sense. Yeah. <laughs> so if, if someone is training hard, then what should happen is that they develop neuromuscular fatigue during the training session. The result of that is that force output goes down. So normally, you see the reps at best stay the same. Like there are scenarios, post-activation potentiation, lack of warming up, where you could have an increase. Uh, from one set to another, uh, or a completely new exercise where, you, where you're just learning technique. But usually, you know, when you're doing an exercise at a certain time, you're training individual and like squat, uh, bench press, lift like that, the reps should go down or at most remain the same. And if you see that that is not happening, that's a very strong indication that they're not working as hard. You can also contrast this with other exercises that they're doing and uh, especially other exercises for the same muscle group, which allows you to see if it's probably a, a feature of the muscle group or of um effort so you know it, if someone's like a more typical bro and you see that the bench press the reps go like 10 7 4 and they're, they're training really hard but on a squat it's like 10 11 7 yeah. 10 right then they're probably just not squatting as hard as they're benching um, so that's that's good to look at if they're likely overtraining or could use more volume and the other thing is where it gets more tricky um if it's not just general program design or they need more volume or more effort uh, they just, they're a special snowflake. And we have a few studies on that. Uh, one is a really cool one by Bevan et al. And there's a pretty recent one that pretty much replicated it, that people just vary quite significantly in how much uh, optimal volume they have, especially volume. Volume is the main thing. Uh, but studies have also manipulated frequency, but then you, in, in the, you know, indirectly also manipulate volume. Yeah. 
And the studies have looked at, like the Beaven study looked at like a power workout, like, you know, low intensity, uh, very explosive, not near failure versus strength versus hypertrophy versus endurance. Endurance being like five sets of 15, I think it was. And some people actually gain more mass and strength. They didn't measure muscle growth directly. It was just total body weight, uh, but also strength. And some people just gain more strength, make better gains seemingly on like the power workout compared to the hypertrophy. So they gain more mass and strength doing like three sets of five at 70% of 1RM or something. Uh, I think it was 55% even, um, which is like not not intensive at all. Like it's high effort in terms of being explosive, but it's, it's not a stimulus you'd normally expect to cause high mechanical tension. And they gain more muscle and strength that way, it seems, than with four sets of 10. Right, so it makes no sense. These these individuals just have either a, a super low volume tolerance, or uh, and some people go the other way around. So then um, you know there are some indications you can look at. In my experience, a, a true heart scanner genetically, they often do better on the more like the lower volumes. And I think anecdotally, also a lot of people have gravitated towards that more like you know starting strength, lean gains, uh, these kind of pro- protocols, um, because. They quite quickly burn out and they are much more uh, injury susceptible in my experience if you put them on like super high bodybuilding style workouts. And that's what a lot of people have experienced. They're like typical hard gainers and they're like, they look at Ronnie Coleman and Arnold Schwarzenegger, what they are doing. They try those workouts and they quite quickly burn out and get injured. So I think I'm more on the side of being conservative, high effort, but being conservative with um, training stress, like volume, proximity to failure and the like. Perfect. Yeah, I think... You're completely right in that a lot of the time you can troubleshoot yourself in terms of like check yourself are you really a hard gainer or have you just not got your shit together uh, mm-hmm. which you kind of talked about a lot of things that maybe people don't even think about they're consistently being inconsistent with lots of the elements that are just required for success and then yeah you gave loads of avenues in terms of what people can then try and kind of see if one thing works better than another kind of experiment for themselves so brilliant answer meno um, next question from elian was uh talk about Borg. Um, he's saying that he advocates minimalistic low volume approaches. So six to 12 sets for an intermediate. What is Menno's opinion on this matter? Um, what's kind of, yeah, what are you thinking there? Mm-hmm. So I think um, it makes sense for certain individuals to be very minimalistic. Um, so what I do in my intake form, um, I ask about someone's dedication level and I, I have three categories basically. So uh, category A is um, which would make the most sense for the minimalistic style workout is you just want some progression. And the most important thing is low effort sustainability. And category B is just a reasonable compromise of um, gains in proportion to effort. And category C is you're willing to do whatever it takes for 100% maximum results. So I think those are actionable categories. By far, most people choose B. Um, but if you're looking at contest prep and the like, uh, and people on gear, they, they often go with C. And uh, minimalism would, would work well for someone in A. Now, that's not most of my clients, so uh, I don't use it as often, but I think it can make sense uh, for those individuals. The only, my concerns with it are that often I see people that are just, they've just become somewhat disillusioned with their gains and they're just unhappy with what they've achieved. And therefore they think they should settle for A, whereas actually that is just the cause of them not having better results. Right. So, you know, it's more of a, a cop-out that they're looking for to do less work, but still get the same results. And often, especially when you get to the advanced level, then even, you know, type A workouts are still yeah. hard. 
So if you if you I mean if you want to go from a thought mass index of like twenty five to twenty six, you're you're gonna have to haul ass. Yeah. Like there's there's no way around it. So even if you do the minimalistic workout, then you're still looking at very serious workouts, just not like grueling, brutal workouts. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. He also had a similar question, well, along the same lines of, I think this is uh, Borg's sustainable self-development program, which, I mean, it says it in itself, it's kind of looking for that sustainable approach, where he has a, a resensitization period of 9 to 14 days with very low volume and kind of a low training stimulus. Uh, what are your thoughts towards that approach? Yeah, so there's a pretty com- it's pretty controversial these days whether um, and I've been for quite some time uh, what the effect of, of basically deload weeks or resensitization periods. Um, various offers use different names, and there are different ideas about what it does. I think what a lot of people want to hear, and I think Greg Knuckles wrote an article about this and used to believe this, but I think he doesn't believe it anymore. Um, is that you do sort of a resensitization period and that actually helps you gain muscle mass faster than if you would not have that that week off. And I think that is wishful thinking because A, there isn't a single study that has found faster muscle growth by taking time off compared to a different group not taking time off ever in any context. So as one of one person in my PT course very uh, nicely summarized, I've never become better at anything by not doing it. So. Um, there's that and empirically and theoretically I think what happens is that the resensitization is quite similar to muscle memory so it's basically a factor of muscle memory and diminishing returns to volume so diminishing returns to volume means that you know at a certain volume you're gaining muscle and if you you double that volume you're not going to get double the gains and if you double the volume again you're going to get even less incremental return on that volume so uh, you know you have to work harder and harder for only a little and a little bit extra uh, result and that is also why if you do say one or two workouts per week then you're going to get you know a certain amount of results and then if you add another workout you're not going to add um, so if you go from two to three workouts you're not going to add 50 percent uh, results generally right and if you um, do that with weeks off then you also get this resensitization and that um, that workout is more effective than it would be if you had not done uh, or if you had done another workout the day before it but the total result of two workouts is still greater than the one workout. It's just like with fasting. Fasting potentiates an anabolic response, but it's super compensatory. It helps you uh, get protein synthesis up a little bit uh, to compensate for the lack of protein synthesis you had during the fast. It doesn't mean that you fast and then you have one meal and that meal gets you so much muscle protein synthesis that it, it balances out the whole fast and then some. At best, it compensates for the reduction you had earlier. And if you go from even like a 14-day kind of deload period or, or time off, however you call it, then there's probably actually some muscle loss in advanced training, depending on your energy balance, uh, or at least some strength loss. And then you're basically talking more like muscle memory mechanisms, like the myonuclei are still there. Um, and in some individuals, there may even be like a, a peaking kind of effect for like, um, you know, the fatigue reduction, yeah. which increases strength. But I think there there isn't any plausible mechanism right now whereby we think that um, time off other than functional overreaching, which would mean you have to do like very high volume beforehand, not like a low volume phase, um, whereby you'd actually gain more by with the resensitization period. You know, it's compensation for what you would otherwise gain. It's not an additive effect to make you gain more net muscle. Yeah, I like, um, I really appreciate your thoughts on that. And it's something 
I've played around with actually in terms of like having a lower volume period after extended times of extending your volume and kind of get to a point where it gets kind of unsustainable where you almost mm-hmm. have to pull back and you kind of maintain for a period of time and then re-go a little bit and kind of you get that repeat, repeated bout effect which eventually kind of impedes you a little bit. So I've trialed it and I've seen some decent kind of results from it but a lot of it mm-hmm. I think I like about it is it lets kind of a psychological reset in terms of like lowering your volume is kind of oh gosh I don't have to do so much anymore and then Mm -hmm. I think in terms of doing high volumes lots and lots and lots over a period of time kind of get a bit beat up and I think some of that kind of just reducing it all down just allows for maybe some sustainability there but um, like you said it's not something that is very well researched it's just something kind of hypothetical and some people have used it and seen great things and i think it comes down to methodology sometimes like mm-hmm. your methodology is different to maybe how borge is doing things and how other like uh, mike is very much pushing volume a little bit more potentially than you um mm-hmm. and actually that's something that came up that was a question that came up i might as well breach it now um so abel asked um what's your kind of thoughts on mike's stance in terms of adding sets kind of potentially week to week to kind of accumulate towards an MRV. He kind of talked about how potentially your mind's changed on that and maybe weren't so favorable before, but maybe seeing that there's more kind of a a more reasonable way to do things now. Um, Well, I'm pretty, I use a pretty constant volume generally over time. Like there are certain things, like if someone goes from a cut to a bulk, then in the bulk, I will probably increase the volume. Um, but basically, mechanistically, a muscle has a certain optimum stimulus in terms of muscle growth. Like there's a certain volume it can't handle. There's a certain volume that just won't cause net growth. Somewhere in between there is like a sweet spot in terms of the maximum amount of muscle that you can stimulate. A combination of volume, frequency, proximity to failure, etc. Or like a range at least. And that's basically what, where you want to be. And there are many reasons to, to go lower in volume, like injuries, for example. Uh, or mentally just needing a break. But in terms of purely muscle physiology, in terms of how much muscle you can stimulate, I think there's no reason to go below it because if you start lower, then you're just you're missing out on some gains and you're not going to be able to get those back in the future. So it's not like you're, you know, there's something during those weeks that makes you gain more muscle afterwards. Like you can spend 10 years messing around in the gym and not getting anywhere. And it's not like then the 11th year, we start training more seriously, you get double the gains. So uh, I don't think there's much to gain there other than for like injury or mental reasons. And then if you push the volume up higher, then you get to the point where um, you basically, you want to do functional overreaching. That's the idea. So, and that's also why the low volume may work better, right? Because otherwise, if you're not going to get functional overreaching, you just have one period where you're not making optimal gains. And then you have a period of optimal gains somewhere where you're doing the right volume. And then you have a period where you're overreaching and you're also not getting optimal gains. So to compensate for that, the idea is that you have a functional overreaching period here with the higher gains. And then in the low volume phase, that um, delayed supercompensation occurs. It's, it's very speculative at this point because um, it was only up until, I think, um, a couple months ago that we actually had any data showing delayed supercompensation actually takes place. It was all based mm-hmm. on uh, Soviet research, which is mostly Olympic weightlifters, basically peaking for like a powerlifting or a weightlifting contest. So they look at strength and not muscle growth. And now um, a new study has looked at this and they found that functional reaching in terms of muscle growth is actually a thing. And it occurred for like um, a week or even two weeks, maybe even 20 days after the uh, the overreaching period. 
which is a very substantial time where there was still um, muscle growth, at least by some measure, because MRI and um, ultrasound, I think, didn't um, show it. Um, but the idea was that you, you overreach some period and then you gain the muscle growth you gain later, and it adds up to that. But that study design, which was actually with blood flow restriction and super high frequency training, had also been done a few times earlier. It was a Norwegian study, and they have used that similar design in, uh, I think, two other studies at least. And if you look at the average daily growth rate in terms of CSA per day, then at the end of the study period, it didn't compensate for the, um, the reduced gains that you had with the overreaching. Because while they were overreaching, they were actually, um, they had loss of uh, performance and even some loss of uh, muscle growth, depending on which measure you look at. So muscle size actually decreased a bit. They were overtraining so hard, basically, that they were regressing. And then afterwards, the body is basically, just needs a long time to recover from that. But of course, what we like is that, you know, you get like a super, an added super compensatory response, and then you gain so much muscle that it, it weighs up for that, that period before, and then some. But again, it appears to be more compensation in, in than hacking the system, right? So it's more that it delays your gains than that it really augments them. So I think based on the data we have, it's for one, um, hypothetical that you really get any functional overreaching with uh, like normal kind of protocols because in that study i think they were training twice a day or something um you have to train very very intensely for like quite uh, a period with generally very high frequency volume uh, train to failure combination and then afterwards uh, it's very dubious if your gains will actually outweigh what you could have gained beforehand and if you just look at uh, there's also the question of what kind of measure of muscle growth you're looking at because um, if you look at pure volume, it just increased during the workout period and decreased a bit afterwards again. But that may be confounded by edema. So it's also which measure um, you look at. So all in all, I'm, I think it's a very um, theoretical and more risky way than just going with what we know works and just work, working on that consistently. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on Mike's kind of, I think he's, I don't know if he's changed his stance on this, but at least he's made this more clear that he's more of a fan of doing that for people who are more advanced. So he think it's bit more application towards those individuals, probably not so much intermediate, more novice trainees don't need to push it so hard. Do you think it has mm. potential more application towards a more advanced trainee or again, you're kind of like, mm. I think it will be similar. I think, um, I think it will have very minimal application for a novice because a novice can gain very fast and probably has um, not that much, um, like the machinery in place, like for muscle protein synthesis and the like is, is quite reduced in a novice and recovery capacities are quite low. So, um, and functional overtraining or overtraining is hard in the first place for a novice. So I think it's, it's, it's hard to implement, hard to estimate how long the recovery period would be and very unlikely to be result in faster growth than just ramping up um, um, or implementing rapid progressive overload because a novice can still gain so muscle so quickly still. So I think definitely for an intermediate and advanced, it would be more likely to be applicable, um, but I'm still very hesitant um, uh, to say if it will be any better mm -hmm. than just a constant volume. Cool. Um, and to stick with Abel, he had another question asking for you to clarify your squat shoe stance. So you recently posted about kind of squat shoes, maybe not having too much of an impact on kind of quad um, activation and things. So he'd just like mm -hmm. you to clarify that whether or not you think wearing squat shoes when doing a squat or like a leg press would have any beneficial impact if you're trying to isolate the quads. 
Yeah, so I recently posted um, about a study showing that uh, Olympic weightlifting shoes didn't affect the kinematics of the squat, so they didn't increase range of motion, uh, what, which is the common claim that if you squat in Olympic weightlifting shoes, you get more range of motion, especially at the knee, uh, and therefore it, it targets the knee more. Uh, and other research also found that there's no increase in um, uh, peak knee moment. So um, probably the actual mechanical demands on the, the quadriceps are, are not higher. Uh, and there's also no increase in muscle activation. So if you combine those factors, it's, it's quite unlikely that you're really changing the um, there's a growth stimulus compared to um, squatting barefoot, for example. And that's quite consistent with research showing that the growth stimulus between front squats, low bar back squats, high bar squats is also very similar. I mean, if you if basically um, a high bar squat or a low bar squat in Olympic weightlifting shoes is, is kind of similar to a high bar squat, right? And then if you go, um, if you say you augment the heel lift more, then you go even more towards a front squat kind of stance. So heel lift and bar position are have similar, not the same, but similar effects on changing the movements. But in the end, it's the same muscles performing a very simple, very similar task, which will generally result, especially for the quads, in maximum uh, engagement, maximum work done, and uh, presumably maximum growth. So probably going to be not much, too much difference. But main, main reason people freaked out is that I said, if you can't squat without Olympic weightlifting shoes, you can't squat, and you need to devote more time to learning how to right. squat. And I still stand by that. Like if I mean, I don't know any successful squatter that cannot squat to depth without um, Olympic weightlifting shoes. Like if you can't squat to depth without Olympic weightlifting shoes, then your technique just need work. Like there are some individuals, right? Like 0.1% of the population or something that just have a structure, hip impingement problems or whatever. They just, they really cannot hit yeah. depth pain-free. Uh, but it's a, it's a very, very small minority. And in like, if I look at how many people have come to me and said, I, I have tight ankles or tight hamstrings, tight hamstrings is the best one because it makes yeah. no sense. The hamstrings don't lengthen in the bottom position of the squat because they're flexing at the knee, right? So the hamstrings are, are actually in about the same position lengthwise in the bottom of the squat as in the top position. So many of these explanations also don't make sense. And really what they just need is, is better technique, better stability, not flexibility. And you can also see this if you put them on the, on the floor and you just put them in a squat position, they can get into that yep. position. Like the, functionally, the body can be put in that position. But when it has to support weight, when it's weight bearing, then no longer uh, can they maintain that position. So it's a, it's a matter of stability, not flexibility for most people. Right? So, so barring the few exceptions um, that there are, I think most people should learn um, to, to squat properly, to depth. And then if you can do that, there may be a slight advantage, like there's, in terms of three studies have looked at this, and one study found that you did get more range of motion. And they actually focused on ass to grass squats. It's not very clear if they also maintained good exercise technique in terms of lumbo-pelvic posture, uh, because they also had novices ass to grass squat. Um, but they did find that the benefits of the heel lift were far less pronounced in um, advanced lifters, or experienced lifters, as I call them, compared to novices, which again supports that it's probably not, um, or it's either the flexibility or stability, but either way, you can probably gain that with experience in the squat. And then you don't need to rely on the shoes as much. But even then, there was still, um, only for the men, not in the women uh, group, there was an increase of range of motion for a squat, which would suggest that, okay, maybe we can actually get the range of motion greater. And anecdotally, it certainly appears that, you know, some people can squat deeper. Now, most people measure that in terms of vertical bar displacement which doesn't mean you're actually increasing range of motion at the joint because range of motion is measured in joint angle degrees. So if you are slanting the surface, 
what you're standing on, then that the bar goes down deeper doesn't necessarily mean that at the hip or the knee there is more range of motion. And most studies, actually, I think literally every study on this in every group, find that range of motion at the ankle decreases, which supports that for a lot of individuals in that study, ankle range of motion was not actually the limiting factor for uh, the squat. So it was mainly maybe only a few outliers that tilted the average uh, a few degrees because it was literally four or five degrees, I think it was in that study. You know, four or five degrees squat range of motion in um, is given the same um, peak knee uh, joint moment and same muscle activation level, it's going to be a very minimal difference in training stimulus. So there may be some individuals who actually can benefit from Olympic weightlifting shoes, but for the vast majority of individuals, you probably don't need them in the first place. If you use them, it may not increase your range of motion much at all, just vertical bar displacement. And the best case scenario is generally that you're sacrificing range of motion at the ankle for more range of motion at the knee. And you also come with higher knee injury risk because um, depending on uh, your structure, the knee may also travel further forward. So there is more uh, knee stress and greater knee injury risk. And that's also what a lot of research finds in terms of people that wear heel lifts and especially mm -hmm. women wearing heels and like you get more knee injuries. So all in all, there are like some people that may benefit from it. And it may have for those people a slight improvement in how you target the quads at the expense of the calves and with an increased knee injury risk. But for the vast majority of individuals, you don't need Olympic weightlifting shoes and uh, they won't change the training stimulus that much. Cool. Fantastic roundup. And actually, Meadow, do you have any recommendations in terms of what to squat in if not a squat shoe? Uh, your feet. <laughs> so <laughs> I think uh, for a lot of people, these days shoes are kind of like the default. But actually, I'm, just, I'm sort of with the paleo crowd on this one, okay. that the, the default should be uh, barefoot. And only if you have a reason, uh, like if you have that particular structure where you really benefit from Olympic weightlifting shoes, or um, if you have um, certain foot pathology, then you may benefit, or your gym just doesn't allow it, you may benefit from shoes. I, I, current, I, self, I myself wear Vivo barefoot shoes. Yeah. Um, uh, I really like them, very comfortable. Um, you, it's one of the few types of shoes I, I, can, I can put them on. I've never worn them before. I can go on a five-hour hike and zero problems. So it uh, just fits really well. I also squat barefoot really well. And uh, there's some research indicating get increased proprioception if you squat barefoot. And it's something to really try for most people, I think. So you, you get a better sense of yeah. where your, your body is in space and the, the sensation of your feet touching the ground. It sounds like hippie shit, but <laughs> it's actually um, the muscles in your feet actually give sensory information to the brain about you know where they are and uh, which muscles are active. So I think that's something to try first. And then only... We have a good reason to use a shoe, uh, use a different shoe. Otherwise, just Pivo barefoot shoes or uh, if you're indifferent to fashion, to go with Vibrams yep. um, or um, uh, something like that, like the um, New Balance Minimus yeah. or Nike also has one minimal shoe. And Chuck Taylors are all right, but they do have a bit of heel lift and uh, they are quite uh, inflexible, which can be good for powerlifting. But we also have research showing that if you wear very sturdy shoes, which may feel nice, uh, while you're wearing them, it also prevents uh, strength from developing in your feet. So I'm, I'm always very hesitant of anything becoming a crutch. And in yep. the long term, um, just creating a problem that you now need the crutch for um, to get the same results as you would get otherwise if you just had not uh, relied on either a belt or shoes or um, any any kind of training gear. Pretty cool. much. Fantastic. So next question is, I'll take the last one from Elian. He asked about 
Some people apparently state that microloading does not provide enough stimulus to cause hypertrophy um, and that you need more percentage than like the minimum amount. What's your take on this kind of microloading criticism? Uh, yeah, that may be the case. I think that's, that's one of the reasons it's important to autoregulate your rate of progression. So I'm, I'm not a fan at all of these kind of programs where they say like uh, 80% and you're going to do five reps with that. So I'm okay with programming 80% and that's what I do myself. So 80% and then an RPE or a proximity to failure. Uh, and also for progression, you you, you implement, um, you know, try to get more reps or try to add more weight. And then if you, um, if the first set was easy, for example, add weight again, you need something more of a system like that, that makes you push for maximum progress and individualize it for your rate of uh, possible progression so that you don't end up under training and you also get, um, you get the most results that you can gain or the most progressive overload that you can implement uh, for your rate of progression because it will be highly individual. You know, some people gain strength much faster than others. Um, I think that that is the way to go. And you can also go with like fixed um, rep targets, but then you shouldn't um, go with a weight. So you say like 8RM, you're going to do 8RM. That's also okay. Uh, I'm not a big fan of that, um, especially because when you look at gender difference and the like, sometimes women... When you look at an 80% intensity, women can do like 12 reps mm -hmm. with that, actually. So if you force them to do eight RMs, then you're, they could do much more work, actually, um, at, um, at the desired intensity than you would have them do now. So I'm not as uh, big a fan of that, but it can, it can certainly work. Uh, but I think the, the main intuition that relying on a fixed rate of progression is indeed not a good idea. Now, that's not a problem with microloading. It's, it's a programming um, limitation if you if your programming is too rigid and microloading itself is, is pretty much never a problem because like I say you can always add weight in the next set so and really you're talking about like you know maybe one pound or even if you're talking like point point twenty five point five point two five pound increments or the like then yeah you know yeah. that that is a very small increment but very few people even have those. So even if you're talking like a one pound increment, if you can do that from session to session consistently, uh, even for like a squat or something, that, that's good progress for an advanced trainee. So it, it's very rarely actually a problem that the increment is, is too low. Fantastic. So something like uh, a lot of people might use a repetition range to a RPE or proximity to failure, like mm -hmm. they're kind of auto-regulating it themselves. And they might well yeah. be that they're advanced and they can only microload the smallest amount or get an extra rep, whereas maybe someone more novice can increase that a bit quicker. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Next question is, and this came from a few people, they'd be interested to hear how you implement diet breaks and I don't know if you want to kind of, I, I think a lot of people hear diet break and they think like a week at maintenance intake, I think is the general um, mm -hmm. kind of idea there. So yeah, how, how do you like to implement those, Menno? Uh, I don't. <laughs> so that's the, I, I do implement diet breaks uh, rare, rarely, like in, in a few rare occasions, but um, generally I'm not a big fan of them. Like in contest prep, I can see them being useful because you're, you have a set deadline and you're not aiming for a sustainable um, body fat percentage. So if the, the prep is just too hard and, you know, eight weeks out, you just need a week at maintenance to get your shit together and then you're okay for the remaining eight weeks, that can work. Purely for the, the mental, just you can't handle the, the cut anymore. So you need a bit of a break in that regard. But for most people, the average individual just wants, you know, a bit of a six pack to look okay year round, uh, beach body type physique. 
If you need a diet break, then I think the issue is you have you have some problem in the diet. Something is not sustainable, and that's what you need to work on. And you're not going to be able to get better results with the diet break. There have been a few studies on this. Like the Matador study is now often, is, again, it's having its most wishful thinking kind of idea. We're replicating it, by the way. We're going to do this next year awesome. in a study Yeah, with um, the University of uh, Tampa and um, not, not Jacob Wilson. So uh, that should be uh, good. And I think, um, for one, that study, basically what it found is that diet breaks, or at least taking a week off between dieting, increased RMR, supposedly, not actually in absolute terms, but when they, they worked the magic, magic uh, on the, the relative RMR to body weight ratio. And then there was a, a significant increase, but it was it was quite trivial and not nearly enough to explain the fat loss difference. So uh, just purely in terms of thermodynamics, it's the metabolizable energy difference of the difference in body composition did not match up with the difference in um, BMR chains. So the BMR chains could not have caused the greater fat loss. And I think it just was better adherence. And then people say, okay, yeah, see, it helps adherence and it improves your metabolism. But you're talking about doubling the diet duration, right? If, if you're talking about this in a practical contest and someone needs 12 weeks to do what you could do in six weeks, then you can bulk for six weeks. So any you know minor increase in BMR or um, muscle retention or whatever, you're going to get much better results of, with six weeks of bulking than the, the diet breaks every other week. So I think even if there is any benefit, which is very speculative and I, I would uh, strongly contest, then um, it's just not worth the time investment. And from a physiological perspective, like I say, you need to aim for a sustainable approach. And if, especially if someone goes from like, you know, 20 to 15% body fat and you need a diet break at that point, that, you know, something is seriously wrong. They're not going to be able to get to 7% body fat. If you need a diet break before you reach 15%, then, you know, as a male, uh, you're not going to be able to get six pack lean, uh, definitely not sustain it. So you need to look at, you know, food choices, uh, how are you managing your appetite? Uh, is your, is your meal frequency sustainable? All of these kind of things. Are you sleeping enough? Stress level, anything that improves adherence. And you need to find the problem, troubleshoot, and fix that. Because the diet break, it just puts the problem on hold. It's like sticking your head in the sand. And when you go back to the diet, it's still there. Moreover, one study that looked at the effect of diet breaks, uh, which is often cited by flexible dieting proponents as proof that diet breaks uh, work well, they actually found that there was a trend for people to um, find have more trouble with implementing the diet in the weeks after diet break, especially the days after. And that is very strongly my experience as well, because people change their food choices. And when they go back to the diet, they now have trouble. Okay, damn, I can't eat the chocolate anymore without being massively hungry all day. So they are not working on building habits and routines. Um, and that is exactly what you need to do to build sustainable uh, changes in your physique, to change your habits, change your routines, change your food choices long term, and not go on these, these yo-yo diets. Because the word diet actually comes from Greek and meant way of life, not the what we see now as like, you know, a cut and bulk and that bodybuilding, the terms actually contribute to this, like the idea that, you know, the, the whole term of bulk suggests that now you're you're going to go to McDonald's and pick out and be like Lee Priest and uh, uh, you're going to eat everything you want. Uh, but actually for most people that want to stay six pack lean and lean bulk and stay in like a, for like a male trainee, uh, like the seven to 12% body fat range, ideally, that, that's great for most people. Uh, and you, you'll look great, maybe not contest shape, but great by any standard. And for women, like generally, you know, 15 to 20% uh, is, is very nice for most women. Then you're, you're going to need to make those sustainable changes. And it, it's not going to, um, a diet break is something that should be a last resort, 
not like the first tool to to improve adherence. No, I think those are some excellent thoughts and comments on diet breaks in general because I think a lot of people see those studies and it's like the stretching it's kind of like oh this is the way to do things now whereas we've done things with success without this sort of approach and i even down to myself and also pascal the other coach another coach of i stronger i found with clients when i include them they work really really well for the large majority of people but he's found that most people have exactly the issues you brought up and they just find that it doesn't work with them. So I think it's, there's definitely kind of some people at work, some people it doesn't. And is it really necessary? Is it doing? And I think your points in terms of, is it really doing what people hope it to? Probably not. We're probably needing much more time at maintenance or something like that. So brilliant, brilliant comments there. So I think we have time for one more question. Um, yep. If you got it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're we ha- stopping six minutes, but that should be okay. Okay, so I'll, I'll make you do this nice and sweet. So this is from Pete, and he has asked um, just for one thing that you've changed your thoughts on in respect to training in the past few years. Um, it's usually small changes. Like there's a study, and it makes me slightly change my point of view. Um, you know, for some people, uh, especially on social media and the like, if you only see the latest research. It's, um, it's a bit like skipping to the last chapter of a book and then complaining you don't get the ending. So if you actually read all the book until there and then you find the latest study, it's, you know, doesn't change things that much. Like, it's very rare that there's actually a revolutionary change. But for, like, probably the biggest thing, especially publicly, that I've changed my uh, viewpoint on is training frequency. Like, I'm known uh, for popularizing the idea of, uh, because there were, there were, like, three studies on training frequency at the time. And I connected MPS uh, and the recovery data with muscle growth and frequency and made the argument that because MPS is only elevated for like 72 hours at the most generally, you need to train a muscle every 72 hours uh, or even more frequently up until daily training and advanced trainees. And a lot of research has found that apparently the increase, uh, or we don't know exactly what happens mechanistically, but probably the increase in volume you can get if you go higher volume per session makes the anabolic window actually last quite a lot longer and there is no need to train that frequency. So the uh, the original data we had um, probably oversold uh, the importance of training frequency. So there's a recent study now even that found, uh, or about a year old now, that uh, found very successful gains, uh, even just training a muscle once a week uh, compared to, I think, five times a week. So uh, that shows that, you know, the typical kind of bro workout can still work quite well. Now, we do have some indications now, especially um, uh, more recent studies that probably there's more like a volume threshold per session, like five to 10 sets. That's like productive work. And after that, you're better off increasing your frequency. So I always said that it, it's more for advanced trainees. And if you look at which studies find benefits of uh, greater training frequencies, they're almost all with, with just one exception in trained individuals. Uh, and it's mostly in very highly trained individuals. National powerlifting team in Norway, um, Finnish uh, Olympic weightlifters um, at the national level. Um, a few studies on like people with um, a squat of at least 150% of uh, body weight. So you're, you're looking at very seriously trained populations that generally also train with higher volumes. And that's the population where higher training frequencies probably have the most benefit. And up until that point, especially for like a novice, intermediate, the benefits are very slim. So uh, that's definitely something I've... Uh, gone more towards the um, uh, side of it, it doesn't matter as much and there are certain contexts where higher frequencies are beneficial 
Uh, but it's still interesting to see that there's still only one, one study ever that found a detrimental effect of higher frequencies. So that's like the main concern. It's always been the main concern, like overreaching and the like. Uh, but that appears to be very um, much of a non-issue for most people. As long as you keep the volume in check, frequency is not an independent uh, contributor to overtraining generally. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Mano. Really appreciate your time. And thank you for answering these questions. I do want to make sure uh, people know where to reach out to you, your website and things. I know you've gone through a few changes, so um, I'll make sure everything's linked below. But if you want to refer the listeners to mm -hmm. you, where should they see? Sure. Yeah, you can find everything on uh, myname.com, minnowensemans.com. Uh, and I'm on somewhat on Twitter, mostly on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, so you can, uh, I post study reviews there. And uh, I mostly actually post on social media. And then occasionally on my website, I have like interviews, podcasts, and more very in-depth uh, research reviews and um, articles. Fantastic. Guys, thank you very much for listening. Thank you again, Menno, and we'll catch you soon.